Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Andlar joined us to discuss his pitch for a mountain arena at Lime Ridge Mall. As the impeachment inquiry continues, Donald Trump is getting more and more angry. And what are the major issues in voters' minds for this upcoming election? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday was the uh, much-anticipated uh, meeting, finally, uh, between Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Andlar and Hamilton City Council. Uh, Mr. Andlar appeared before council with a, uh, a plan about what he would like to see uh, up at Lime Ridge Mall. That's the proposed place for an arena and some other commercial development that might be going on there. Uh, well, we want to bring Michael onto the program, and, and, and I'm going to give you an opportunity, by the way, later on to, to weigh in on this. Uh, first of all, uh, Michael, on a very busy day, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for coming on the program today. My pleasure, Bill. Can I? There's a lot more information and a lot of misinformation that seems to be spiraling around this whole subject here. Uh, and I just want to get some clarity for some people that are making some posts on social media. Uh, you've been on this program many times, tried to explain your situation and your perspective on this. Uh, this at no time have you ever said, "I want the city to build an arena for me with their money." No, no. I, I just I've always said the status quo wasn't was in the best interest of everybody, whether it be our our fans, uh, entertainment fans that go to to see concerts uh, with uh, you know with the with the issues that First Ontario Center has, uh, and uh, and what is costing the taxpayers to maintain First Ontario Center today. So, I think there was an opportunity to to do something collaboratively in a public private sector that would uh, that would be- benefit everybody. That, that was my. Uh, that was my uh, that was my ask. And and again to to, to clarify uh, another point that seems to be getting hammered around here. This is not an eleventh hour application. You've been talking to the city about this for years. Well, yeah, and I, I, I we talked about it for about three hours at council yesterday. That was uh, that was a new experience for me. I've never been involved in politics and uh, in any sort, and and it was uh, it was quite uh, enlightening and and. Uh, Let's put it this way. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm a businessman and not a politician. <laughs> it's uh, it's a different it's a different world, Michael. When you walk world. through those doors at City Hall, I, think I could have warned you. Forewarned is forearmed about stuff like this, but you did. You did. No, I was, go ahead. It was it was enlightening. I mean, it was it was, and I and I and I understand the process, and and I, uh, I respect it uh, after after what I saw yesterday. But it was uh, it's extremely. Uh, it gets pretty contentious and acrimonious, and that's the last thing I ever wanted. I've, I've you know, I've been, a, as I said, I've been a partner with the city, you know, by by keeping the lights on at First Ontario Centre for 15 years, and I've never asked for anything, and I've tried to be, you know, part of the community and and uh, uh, positive and a diff- hopefully a difference maker um, in, in a positive way, and and I and I never ever wanted this to be any contentious in any way, shape, or form. So. But I think I think after three hours, I think you know I got to meet councillors for the first time uh, yesterday, uh, even after 15 years. So it was a, it was a, it was good. It was it was a good education even for myself for sure. There's a lot of stuff going back and forth and uh, some half truths to try to substantiate some points of view. Uh, did you get the impression, Michael, that the council was at least open to listening to this and, and considering this as an option? Well, uh, yeah, I guess I guess after the, they had in camera deliberation, I got I found out last night that they that they that they that they put a motion through to to have staff look into it. So that's uh, 
that's step one, I guess, uh, in, in the process. Uh, to me, it's the thing that really uh, was a head scratcher, maybe because I'm, I'm a businessman and I, I look at things as pragmatic and, uh, and sometimes with numbers in mind. And, and I, I'm try, I try to be, I try to be uh, con- conscientious of, 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 you know, all parties. Uh, and the thing that, that, to me, I looked at is, is you know, is a, from, a, from a taxpayer standpoint, what, what does it mean? Uh, and I think that's, and I, and I, get, I get the impression that sometimes people go, okay, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to, we're going to spend, you know, we're going to spend money for something, you know, shiny and new that's going to be, you know, give civic pride and, 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 uh, and continue to keep entertainment and, and, uh, uh, and hockey in Hamilton. Um, oh, God, it's going to cost money, but the, what they don't, what they don't, look at is how much money is actually saving today today the city um sub- subsidizes you know 1.75 million dollars to manage 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 1.2 million dollars in in hydro costs uh, never mind you know fixing uh, elevators or everything that, that goes wrong in that place it's it's on it's over three million dollars a year it used to be even more before when they used to run it themselves but that's that's money that's that tomorrow is they're never going to have to spend it. It's, you know, that's taxpayers' money that they don't have to spend anymore going forward. There's there's a whole bunch of opportunities. It's not just the one-time cost. It's the, you know, and there's a one-time cost, but then how much money are you saving, and 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 you know, less less all the other things. And at the end of the day, I try to be conscientious to to look at it from a standpoint that it's it's not going to cost taxpayers more money than it, it presently is today. Uh, and if anything, you know, and I try to put my money where my mouth is and put my own contribution in, um, you know, for my own reasons, my own, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not, you know, I, I'm involved in this, in this community, not from a business standpoint. I, I make my money elsewhere. I just love what I do. And I love, I love the positive contribution that it does, the difference it makes to the city with respect to whether it be the foundation uh, or whether it's, you know, it's a feel-good thing for me. So, Well, you have made yeah. a significant contribution, both from an athletic standpoint, but certainly from a charitable standpoint, too, with the foundation. But I guess, you know, there were not a lot of numbers going back and forth. And I know that during the conversation, at least one of the counselors said, look, at, uh, the First Ontario Centre, as it stands right now, brings in about $2 million annually from some of the larger names. Uh, and I don't want people to get the impression for one second that it's a money-making operation, because it's not. As you just mentioned, it's costing the city $3 million annually just to turn the lights on and put stuff on in there. So we're, right off the bat, we're in the hole. And, and I know that you've done some projections and you've got some, some information that suggests that if they try to stay there in First Ontario Centre, the maintenance costs and the fix-up costs are probably, over the next number of years, going to amount to more than what the arena would co- a new arena would cost. Yes, you're absolutely right, and, and and the council has said that. I think you know, just to clarify, you're right. You, you, you acts bring in bring in money, and I think it was he was trying to make a point that the fact that the bulldogs don't make us make the city any money, it's a break even at best. And the reality is, is that when you need an anchor tenant in one of these facilities, because there's some time, you know, you can go a whole period of time where you don't have any acts because you know that that's just the the the, the part of the nature of the beast of in, in terms of bringing artists in or. or you know, uh, you can go through you know four, five, six months without bringing a, a, an act into a facility. So, how do you keep people gainfully employed? Uh, so, having a, having an anchor tenant keeps keeps you know keeps full time jobs in this facility, keeps the lights on. That's what I, you know. 
Uh, I remember the president of Live Nation saying that thank you know thanking thanking me one day say hey thanks for keeping Hamilton Hamilton that that you know at that time Cops Coliseum thanks for keeping the lights on at the Cops Coliseum. It, it, it keeps people gainfully employed uh, and and allows to have these acts to come in uh, um, uh, for, for the you know uh, when they do come in. Um, anyway, uh, but, but Michael, there's another side to that too, and again, this is one of the things that I'm seeing from some people's comments again on social media and Facebook and Twitter and things of this nature. That if we move to a smaller arena, whether it's going to be ten thousand, twelve thousand, six thousand, whatever the case might be, some people are under the impression that means we're not going to get any more concerts here, and that's that's a falsehood. Uh, London has a smaller arena than First Ontario Centre. Some big names play London. Garth Brooks played London. I know we played here too, but Elton John just played the arena in St. Catharines. I mean, for heaven's sakes, to suggest that the lights are going to go out and we're not going to get anybody of any consequence here is really a fallacy. No, if anything, I think we're probably losing acts because of the the the, the facility. I've been involved, uh, you know, in Montreal. I was involved uh, with with a build building a public private initiative in Laval, which has been extremely successful. Um, and and we we uh, we actually focus one of the focus items was 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 the facility and creating an environment that was more attractive for artists when they did come in, whether it be for artists, friends and family, or, or just the way they have it today, instead of, instead of having a change in a, in a hockey dressing room or, or the like. So, uh, you know, artists have choices where they want to play. Uh, the reality is, is that Toronto is just down the street. So if an artist has a choice, you know, a large artist has a choice that from a logistic standpoint, they're not going to go out there and play Hamilton one night and leave and go play, uh, you know, a Scotia Bank uh, uh, place the next uh, the next day. They'll 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 play two days in a row at at you know in Toronto and and uh, because the facility is better uh, better equipped, better rigged, uh, more modern, uh, and and the likes. So, you know, the goal here is to try to create something that's modern, that, that, that's great for the fans, also great for the artists, and, and be able to, uh, so less, less sometimes is more. Uh, and if you want to have bring 17,000 people, there's a beautiful facility down the street called Tim Hortons Field, uh, where you can have, you know, you can put 25,000 people in there and, 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 uh, and, and do it right. Well, and we also know, having talked to people at Live Nation and, and others, Spectre, and, and, and through the years, uh, some of those larger acts rather place arenas or, or uh, stadiums in the summertime in the nice weather anyway because they can get the larger crowds. And that's an opportunity that we don't seem to be cashing in on, too. I, I want to talk about time frames because I, one of the things that's sticking in my craw, and I'm not saying, hey, it's got to be Lime Ridge Mall or nothing, and neither are you for that matter, but uh, the, the, this, I know there are some counselors that are really married to this idea that it must be downtown absolutely positively. But the logistics of this, Michael, seem a little problematic to me. Uh, first of all, they're going to have to find land someplace, and that might require expropriation. It might require land sale, and they haven't talked about how much that's going to cost. Uh, they think from the Erston Young report it might cost about $120 million to build an arena down there. I don't see or hear of any other private sector partners stepping up to say, we'll help with that. And I don't think any taxpayer here wants to be on the hook for $120 million all by themselves. We've, we've been down that road before, and that's, uh, that's going to be somewhat problematic. What you're offering here is to step up and say, look, it, I will partner with you guys, and I'll write a check for this to try to defer some of the costs for taxpayers and take some of the long-term costs over in the arena, too. Have I got yeah, that right? Yeah, that, that's you, you make some good points, some valid points. Uh, the the one 
you know, certainly, certainly going forward, it's not going to cost uh, it's not going to cost the city any more money because I, I, I'm taking on the I'm taking on the responsibility and the risk of of managing managing the arena. Uh, Grant, I'm not going to do it myself. It's going to be in partnership with with a Spectra uh, or, or the likes. Sure. Um, you know, so so and 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 they've they've you know. Uh, they, they've, they, in Live Nation, and they, they've expressed interest and want to do something uh, together. Uh, now they're, they're being, you know, they're, they're being contracted by the city also, and, and they're, they're, they're there to consult the city as well. Uh, the Ernst Young report to have a downtown precinct, you know, it, it, in all intents and purposes, makes a lot of sense. Um, the issue is cost, and the issue is timing. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having a, you know, I think it would be great to have, you know, between York and Bay and, and, and James and, and, and York, uh, to have, uh, you know, that type of precinct. Uh, but there's, there, we've got, now that they're, they're talking about expropriation, that's going to cost a lot of money and, and, and moving things around and environmental, uh, well, and time, Michael. I mean, if there's going to be expropriation, yeah. there's the possibility of court challenges and, and timing, yeah. timing is important to you. And that's and, and but that's exactly what the councillors were talking about yesterday. There's you know the a lot of councillors says there's no way we're going to get this thing done within five years. Uh, you know, and it's a uh, the LRT was supposed to have a shovel in the ground by 2019, and I think we got two months left, le- less than two months to get a shovel in the ground. I don't see that in, happening in the near future. Uh, but and that's just the reality uh, of it. And I, and I and I think we got to be pragmatic and 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 about it. The other aspect is the Limeridge Mall. Cadillac Fairview is, you know, in my opinion, they're a local hero. They're the largest employer in the city of youth. They're the largest taxpayer. And in this proposal, they're actually donating the land in a form of a $1 a year lease to the city for whatever we're going to gonna gonna you know it could be 20 could be 40 years uh it could be 60 years i mean that's that's something that we, we sit down and discuss but that then that 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 liberates you know uh first ontario centers on over four acres at york and bay that liberates the city to do whatever they want with that including selling it or developing it developing it in partnership with somebody else and that the the revenues from that would be more than what their contribution to the arena would be. So at the end of the day, you could do it right and actually cost taxpayers no money. Um, uh, you know, and, and that's 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 why I'm looking at it from a business standpoint and from a tax dollar standpoint. It makes so much more sense, and you get something shiny and new in 2022 versus. You know, and you don't have to upkeep First Ontario Centre for the next ten years, which is going to cost tens and tens of millions of dollars as well. So, anyway, I'm, I'm just rambling on because I'm pretty passionate about it. Sure, you are. But at the same token, I don't totally respect whatever the city wants. Uh, I, I've I've always tried to be collaborative and cooperative, and and at the end of the day, I'll be totally respectful of what they want. My concern is that uh, you know is that it's, it may take. It may take ten years before we do that, and I think that's going to cost taxpayers a lot of money. And then from a fan perspective, it's not something that we're going to be very proud of. Just the same way that that you know, opening night, uh, Scott Radley wrote that article, which yeah. was a bit embarrassing, about the warts of First Ontario Centre, where where the elevators and the escalators weren't working, which is something that you know don't want to advertise. Uh, they're working now, by the way. So for for those of you who want to come to First Ontario Centre, watch uh, Bulldogs play on Saturday and Sunday, you know. 
more welcome. <laughs> uh, I got about a minute left, but I want to get your comment on one yeah. other thing that I've raised a couple of times uh, when I've done segments on this, uh, Michael. Uh, you are a very successful businessman. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been involved in negotiations for many, many times over many, many companies. The city obviously has a process in place, too, and it's usually done behind closed doors, and in other words, confidentially. Uh, I'm getting the sense that there's a number of counselors here that want to do these negotiations with you out in public. Are, are you comfortable with that? I, 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 like, I like an open forum. I, I mean, we don't have to... I mean, negotiations should be done... In, in, in private, uh, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, it has to go to a council. But I'm open communication is, is the best way, in my opinion. I think, you know, you want, if, you know, you're trying to be collaborative, you're trying to be, you know, uh, uh, we're all trying to do the, we should all have the same motivation. And then, you know, so that way nothing gets miscommunicated. I, I've got no problem with that. I, I, you know, I, I, I personally, uh, you know, people warn me about Castle Marula. I personally like the man. Uh, I, I, he's he's he, he's to the he's to the point. He said, "I don't want this to cost taxpayers any money. I, I don't want to subsidize uh, entertainment and sports." And I think we got that in common. I said, "I don't I, I don't think the city should be uh, subsidizing that." So uh, you know, he just comes across a little bit more to the point, and people probably liked it to be. But at the end of the day. Uh, I've got no issues with being open about it because, frankly, this, I got no hidden agenda. It's, it's, and I, I want people to know what, what's going on. Michael, uh, they've got some more information in front of them. As you mentioned, they've uh, sent staff away to crunch some numbers, and uh, we'll see what next steps are. Uh, thank you again for the time today. I know we'll stay in touch. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As the impeachment inquiry uh, continues, uh, Donald Trump continues to grow more and more angry and, uh, well, unhinged, I think, is probably a very apt description, too, tweeting out that the Democrats are wasting everybody's time and energy on, well, uh, BS, I'm going to say, uh, because we want to keep our license there, except that he did not say BS. He used the whole word. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group, joins us uh, in studio. Good to have you here. Thanks for joining us on a busy week. Thank you. Were you surprised by the tweet? I was I, I had the opportunity yesterday between all the election stuff to watch the first press event that he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I turned my TV back on an hour later, I, I felt like I maybe was watching a replay because he was doing another one, which is unusual. Um, but given the performance that he had in both of those press events where the Finnish prime minister was there, uh, I wasn't surprised that the veneer had dropped and that his tweet was actually how he really communicates, right? As much as we've seen kind of this unhinged, uh, badly spell-checked kind of president seemingly doing a stream of consciousness on Twitter. It's been very bizarre to watch the last couple of years. When that that swear word was in all caps, it's like, okay, this is the same guy who, in the press briefings, said, are you looking at me? You know, and I'm wise to you guys. And we started to hear, uh, really, um, he is part of, this is really more of a a mob kind of a thing that we're looking at with all these players and all the criminality that's going on. Uh, And so you started to see that temper come out and you started to see this this whatever he remember when he said during the campaign that it'd be easy to pretend to be president and he kind of did that walk 
walking around yeah. thing. To a certain extent, he's been pretending, uh, and uh, he's good at it. He's an excellent showman and salesman. But yesterday, what we really saw, and that's why you know uh, Trump uh, meltdown was trending. We saw a really extreme end of that behavior. Uh, the fact that the usual way that they just flood the zone with theories and a lot of false information and a lot of emotion uh, that had worked for him for the last three years. But with the powers of impeachment and with the ratings now in the U.S. saying over 50 percent of the American people are supportive of the impeachment inquiry, uh, he had even told his internal team by reporting that that was going to be a place where he'd start to get really worried. And so what we're seeing now is is him I think dispensing with some of the false formalities of the presidential office that he's been holding up, and we're seeing the real Donald Trump come through. Notwithstanding the the, the foul language uh, in in the tweet, uh, the other accusations are, are, are disturbing. I think mm-hmm. on so many different levles, uh, accusing Adam Schiff of, of being a you know, of treason, basically, right, which is well, punishable you know, the, by death. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and on and on it goes. And, and, you know, some of the other language, too. The whistleblower, obviously, mm-hmm. is a spy and should be treated as a spy and things of this nature. Uh, uh, the impeachment process itself, he's, he's demeaning. It's part of the Constitution. But okay. he doesn't seem to care about that. And I don't think he ever has. I don't think he's ever cared particularly about any of the rules, norms, or constraints, right? Uh, do you remember back in 2015 when Ryan Spribus said he wants people want a Molotov cocktail thrown at the White House to, or Washington to sort of blow it up? Um, well, he is that, and he was that. And I remember saying the day after the election when he won that America was sick and it was looking for the experimental drug therapy treatment instead of the tried and true course, right? And so, you know, they're getting what they asked for. But what we're seeing with the increasing pressure of this whistleblower complaint and the impeachment inquiry, we're seeing a White House that, unlike Bill Clinton's war room to get through his impeachment, uh, we're not seeing any kind of a cohesive strategy. We're, in fact, seeing defections, whistleblowers, uh, Rudy Giuliani's shtick of throwing everything at the, I call it the kitchen sink uh, crisis management Mm -hmm. strategy, throw everything at the wall, including the kitchen sink, and see what sticks. Uh, It is not working. And that is leaving them feeling incredibly frustrated and going to extreme ends. I mean, to have the attorney general traveling the world, telling other countries to investigate their own uh, relationships with U.S. intelligence, right? And what kind of a chilling message does that send? To have Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state, lie, as Corey Lewandowski said, they don't care about lying to the media. He lied to Martha Raddatz and said that he didn't know about that whistleblower transcript. He was, in fact, on the call. Yeah, he, he heard the call. He admitted it yesterday. Uh, so the fact that but, you but, have uh, him to that it. point, though, Laura, mm-hmm. when he finally made that admission yesterday, he mischaracterized the phone call. And we, there's <laughs> a there's a well, it's not a transcript, but there's a written record of it that totally contradicts what Pompeo said. And he was in the room, but he tried to characterize it as something else. So what that tells me is that these guys know for the first time that they're in trouble. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to use semantics and half admissions and just give just enough to get the pressure off, but still confuse the issue. The problem, though, is that you can, as Bob Woodward said, you know, he hopes the impeachment goes a long time because he thinks that there's information out there that will lead to more than just impeachment. It will actually lead to a, a conviction in the Senate and lead to the end of the presidency. And, uh, and I don't doubt him. He's a he's a credible journalist and he's got a lot of background sources. Uh, but 
I think that the rest of the world is looking at this saying, move quickly because there's a clear understanding narrative here. We understand what happened. He made a phone call, and what he did was not only illegal on that call, but it was high crimes and misdemeanors by definition, using the power of the office of the presidency for a personal thing. And on top of that, he wasn't just saying, hey, you know, do me a favor, give my son some money or or support my family business. He was basically saying, uh, do me a favor and investigate my political opponent. So, I mean, if that doesn't make the standard of what impeachment was set up for, nothing does, right? That's how the framers wanted it. But, but the essence of, of, of the request in and of itself is, is somewhat problematic uh, because the story, the narrative the Republicans are telling about Biden and his son doesn't jive with the because it has been investigated and, and there was a, an exoneration. There was nothing. I, I, I'm now I'm quoting Trump. There's nothing to see here. Uh, no collusion, no anything else. Uh, Hunter Biden probably made a few bucks out of this, but not at the time that they said and not in the way in which he said. And, and even the characterization that, well, Joe stepped in and made sure that that uh, prosecutor got fired. It was the G7 that wanted this guy removed. Biden was only one of seven voices to said he's got to go. And Biden wasn't working for personal interest. No. Biden was working for the president of the United States that he served for national interest. So, so I think it's important for people to understand why all this Ukraine stuff, why all this Giuliani stuff, why are they over there, what's going on? Basically what they're trying to do to take the ultimate historical pressure and the heat off of Trump and Putin is to say, listen, and all the meddling in the U.S. election had nothing to do with Putin and Russia. It had to do with Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and the Ukrainians, right? So not only is it now a conspiracy against Trump rather than the conspiracy that helped Trump, which we know about from the intelligence communities, but it also makes Russia look less guilty and Ukraine more guilty. And Russia has invaded Crimea. It isn't in a hot war with Ukraine. We're supposed to be on the side, technically, of the world of Ukraine, a democratic country that was invaded by Russia. Uh, and so there are much bigger geopolitical motives behind all of this. But at the end of the day, Americans can clearly see that what he did on that phone call, if you even get rid of all that other conspiracy junk and all the stuff they're trying to do with Ukraine, what he did on that phone call alone was wrong. It is a breach of his of his oath as the president. Uh, many people argue it's actually, in fact, illegal. But it, to be impeached, it doesn't have to be illegal. This is not a legal trial. And so when he throws out things like, I did nothing illegal, yeah, but you did something wrong. You did a high crime and misdemeanor from the political context of the Constitution. You're asking for personal leverage and help based on the power of the American people entrusted to you. And you are also going after a political opponent on an American election, as, as one person said so brilliantly. Sort of the worst two things you can do to the United States is to uh, act against its interests in terms of helping somebody invade or harm the United States in sort of a, that kind of warlike way, or uh, act against the interest of a free and fair election, which is the, the cornerstone that holds up their entire democratic experiment. The Democrats have to be careful here, too, and tread rather lightly. I mean, you know, they I don't think anybody saying, hey, we got this guy, but they're, and they're saying all the right things for the most part, that no, we're following a process and this is our constitutional duty to have oversight, even whether he likes it or not. But Adam Schiff is, is the guy here, and he's colored outside the lines a couple of times, and that mm-hmm. just gives the, the Republicans and, and Trump's sycophants talking points. Adam Schiff did something really stupid. Yeah. Uh, when he went in front of that congressional hearing the other day, um, and he he said, I'm going to paraphrase Trump just to make it clear, because the, the document that Trump produced isn't a verbatim transcript. It's kind of, uh, you know, it's there's pieces that are kind of you have to fill in. So he was trying to summarize it in a clear narrative. 
some somewhat like I've done here. But that's not his responsibility when he's sitting in Congress and he's leading the invest the impeachment. So I, I think that was too cute by half, and that blew back on him. But that's why we saw Nancy Pelosi standing next to him in solidarity yesterday afternoon uh, and saying extremely clearly, and she's brilliant, of course. She said this was more a message, I think, to her own Democrats than to anybody else. She said, we are just focusing on the phone call because that is why we are drawing up articles of impeachment. And if they continue to obstruct us, then those will also be articles of impeachment, obstruction of Congress. But she said, we are not pursuing the fact that he is too much of a coward to help children with gun control, or he is too much of a, of a, of a you know, um, too stupid to, to understand climate change. So she, she sort of put out for we're her- not, We're not going to talk about the yeah, moats with the snakes. Yeah, and, which, is, and, which is very clever, yeah. right? She, she basically threw out to her base, like, I get you. He is impeachable on a whole range of issues, but this is the one that Americans clearly understand, because we all know what it's like when we need something from someone badly, and Ukraine needed that aid. I mean, they're fighting a hot war with who's supposed to be our, you know, the enemy of the United States, Putin. Uh, and he said, you know, yeah, 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 but I need something from you, though, right? I need you to do me a favor to get the U.S. aid funding to help an ally in a war. I mean, it's so blatant that you don't have to understand all of the characters and all the stuff and all the kind of mob-like connections and everything. That stuff's fascinating, but that doesn't, it's not required. This We have the evidence, as Rachel Maddow said the other night on Colbert, uh, he said it, he did it, he confessed to it, he provided the evidence of it. It's impeachable. Uh, and I think as long as they, Nancy Pelosi can keep the communication as clear and concise as that and rein in all these other comments and theories and rabbit holes they can chase down, he'll probably be impeached before Christmas. Now, the Senate won't convict unless there's something much bigger that comes along that makes them look really bad. Um, but at least I think we'll see an impeachment. When when you look at how this is rolling along, and, and as mm-hmm. you mentioned, at the pace at which it's rolling along, uh, how do you see the American people going on? I know that the, the majority now favor continuing with this impeachment mm-hmm. inquiry, but but the analogy is always drawn, uh, rightly or wrongly, with Watergate and saying, you know, after the, the, the tapes came out and they heard Nixon saying, we have to cover this up, and, I, and going, I mean, that was his voice. That was... Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when the Republican congressman went to the president and said, we don't have your back anymore. That's right. And that's when he resigned. Yeah, and it was after the Saturday Night Massacre yeah. that people started to go, okay, why the freaking out? Why, you know, and Nixon kept saying, make this go away or I'll fire you. And, you know, I'd keep going through the department. Um, I think... That, that, that was, who's going to rid me of this meddlesome priest? It's that's the right. Same. Yeah, that's right. And so what, what, we th- are, what we saw yesterday was a similar kind of um, losing control of the president, much like Nixon on that Saturday night, when he just so demanded fealty and and cover for his crimes, and people stood up to him. What we're seeing with Trump yesterday, when that reporter stood up to him, you know, who's now being cited as a hero, when Trump was saying, you know, just berating the reporter, and, and the reporter looked like, almost like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, just so, you know, so, um, had so much integrity, you know, you, you couldn't watch that whole scene and not go, wow, this, this president out of control. And so I think that Trump is, for all of, you know, he's been fantastic at deflecting from some of the other more policy things that his administration has put through, right? There are all kinds of changes that will affect America for decades on the judiciary, on, on the health policies, everything that they're getting away with, you know, some pretty radical stuff because we're all distracted by the shiny object of the latest Trump outrage. So he's been really good cover for a lot of other social conservative agendas, right? And, and they won, so that's 
that's their right to do that. Uh, but what we saw yesterday was he is dispensing of that. He is just out of control and enraged, and he's protecting himself. If he gets impeached and removed from office, there's going to be a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, things out there for his arrest. You know, New York alone has stuff that they're waiting on that they can get him on. So he's fighting really not just for his political life, I think, but for his freedom. And and that's going to, American people are going to see that. Got about a minute left, but I got to get your perspective on something else. How Joe Biden's handling this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've told us in many, many times, obviously, that the rule one in politics is don't let your opponent define you. Mm-hmm. The Democrats who are allowing Trump to define Joe Biden. And whatever's going to happen to Trump is going to happen. But at the same time, is that brand ruined? Is that brand damaged beyond control? I don't think so beyond control. Um, and I think that the more that Giuliani... And he hasn't done a very good job of defending himself you know either. He, he did one time, he looked kind of angry. Um, but then he's, you know, his messaging has been pretty good. He hasn't gotten super defensive, right? Um, he hasn't made any real big mistakes. But uh, but Trump is very good, as you say, at defining people. He's muddied the waters around Joe. Uh, and we've seen Elizabeth Warren rising up fast. And we also, Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders just had heart, heart uh, things put in his heart. So whether or not he'll still be part of the top three, we'll have to see. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but I think, no, he's still, Joe's still 20% ahead in Carolina in the early votes, in the early primaries. Uh, more to come on this. Obviously, I, I was going to say a daily basis. It's an hourly basis, I guess, these days now. Laura, thanks as always. Great talking with you again. My pleasure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's going to be an event in town here tomorrow uh, discussing with Hamiltonian some of the social issues that are going to be up for discussion in the upcoming federal election. Uh, things like poverty, homelessness, refugees, etc. Uh, it's uh, the guest of honor is going to be Natalie Appleyard. Now, Natalie, of course, is uh, well versed in this. She, she is a social economic policy analyst for Citizens for Public Justice, and uh, she joins us in just a couple of minutes here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML uh, to talk to us about exactly what's going to be happening at this particular forum. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the priorities and uh, the things that you and I as citizens are, are going to be looking for, uh, and especially looking for answers for, I guess, as we have this discussion and, and this narrative and dialogue about what's going to be happening uh, at candidates' meetings, candidates' debates. It might even be a candidate uh, for public office for this federal election who's knocking at your door in the next little while. Uh, engage them. Talk about these things. Get their views on these things. Uh, i got to tell you... <laughs> As somebody who did this for a little while, and I know a lot of people that are doing it right now, uh, oftentimes when they come knocking on your door looking for your vote, uh, they want to control the conversation. They're the ones that are going to have their one or two or three talking points and leave you with those and then bingo, bango, and then they're off to the next place. And and that's that's fine, and that may be well enough for some people. But if you have a concern about an issue, that's your time to talk to them about that and to bring it up. I mean, because you know, there's a always going to be a pattern that's going on here. It's going to be the economy, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, it's going to be the character of the opponent, whatever the case might be. But there's, I think, a, a, a movement now to try to move that discussion and, and try to include some of these other issues that uh, that are of importance to us that sometimes don't get the exposure and the discussion that they should when elections come along. Uh, Natalie, as we mentioned, is with Citizens for Public Justice, Natalie Appleyard. Uh, welcome to the Bill Kelly Show, Natalie. Great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me this morning. i got to ask you something, because you've, you've been doing this and you're so dedicated to this. Uh, in just a little while, I'm going to be talking with uh, Daryl Berker from Ipsos about the poll that they are releasing today about the most important issues in determining the vote. Uh, and I'm looking at things like uh, poverty, social inequality, 
uh, education, uh, they're down around 12%. How do we bring that those those very important issues further up that list, Natalie? Thanks for that question. I think that uh, we at, at Citizens for Public Justice and our partners, we view poverty as not just a, an issue of, of charity or do-gooding, but it's really an issue of human rights. And so I think it's also integral to some of the other issues that we are hearing um, more in the news recently. So when we hear about climate change, for example, and we hear the concerns that people have for what that means for our society, our society um, how our economy can handle a transition to, um, to a more green economy, what a just transition looks like, a lot of what people are afraid of is poverty and what, what it would mean for the people whose lives would be affected by that transition. And so our message is that, you know, a lot of what we are fearing to come is already here and is already happening for millions of Canadians. So we are just, um, we're trying to raise the profile with our two on this campaign, which we've been doing uh, for seven years now. It happens to be coming before the election, even though it's not an election campaign. Uh, so we've been trying to raise the profile about poverty in Canada and about what needs to be done to address it. And just to let people know that this is something that. Um, is not inevitable, and it's something that can be addressed through systemic change. How how do we get people that are impacted by the, some of these things that we're talking about, and you're going to be talking about at the symposium tomorrow, Natalie, how do you get them in, involved in the political process, engaged in this, and not just voting, but, but you know, active in this and in, active in the discussions? Mm-hmm. Well, I always tell people, you know, you don't need to be a policy expert to let your candidates and your government know what issues you care about and what kind of action you want to see done. So we are encouraging people to check out our election bulletin, which is available online through CPJ's website, um, or by coming out to events in our fall tour. So this Friday we'll be in Hamilton, uh, so that's October 4th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Christ Church Cathedral, 252 James Street North. And we'll be going into detail of our election bulletin resource, which provides people with some background information on poverty, climate justice, refugee rights, and democratic engagement in general. And with that information, we've also provided some suggested questions that people can ask candidates when they come to their door or if they're attending a town hall meeting or all candidates meeting. Um, They can even share those um, questions with the media to propose or an op-ed. And then also um, we're encouraging them not to use this just before the election, but to follow up after the election. So we're really trying to send a message that um, engaging in democracy isn't just about voting, but that we have an opportunity to speak to our elected representatives um, at any time. So we're, uh, we're hoping to try to encourage and um, give people the, the information and the confidence to do that and just encourage them that, um, you know, their elected representatives need to hear from them, and um, that it's not just something for the policy wonks out there or the uh, social justice warriors, as we sometimes get called, but um, that we need to hear from from constituents in their communities. And, and get them to vote. I mean, whether it's an advanced poll or whatever the case might be, because, I mean, I've heard from some elected officials rather cynically that, uh, look at, yeah, we know that stuff's important, but those people, by and large, don't really vote, and these other people that have other issues do vote. And I, want, and I want to get elected, so I'm going to listen to them. Absolutely. So um, definitely we want people getting out to vote. Uh, we want people to access resources to make an informed decision before they vote. 
um, to really question some party loyalties that they may have or that may exist in, in their family or in their communities and really look at the policy. We hear a lot about um, really divisive issues in the media and um, we have a problem in our, in our society in terms of being able to have discussions with people who disagree with us and, and to do so in a respectful manner. So it, uh, it takes a little extra work, I would say, to sift through some of the rhetoric and some of the grandstanding, but take a look at the policy platforms, take a look at what priorities you see reflected by the parties, and decide what reflects what you think um, Canada should be doing and, and the direction we should be heading in. Well, uh, tomorrow, Christchurch Cathedral on James Street North, uh, for people that want to be involved in this, and uh, many people, I hope, are going to show up and, and listen and get and, and have their voice heard in situations like this, and maybe even get some uh, some insider tips on how to work within the the process that exists. Uh, Natalie, great work that you're doing. Uh, good, good luck with this tomorrow and going forward, and thanks so much for the time today. Thank you very much. Natalie Appleyard, of course, who is a uh, socioeconomic policy analyst for Citizens for Public Justice. So as we're talking about the issues that matter to Canadians, and we're getting, a, I think, a snapshot of that with some of the polling that we've seen done, uh, some of the shows. Of course, uh, CBC is interviewing the leaders. Uh, the leaders' debate, by the way, which is coming up on Monday, the English language debate. Uh, from 7 till 9 o'clock, and we will carry that, by the way, at 900 CHML, uh, live uh, with the leaders and, uh, the well, the panel of, uh, of uh, guest uh, experts that are going to be questioning uh, the leaders in that. And it's a combination of a bunch of uh, very, very talented journalists from right across uh, the spectrum, all the broadcast journalists here in Canada. So we look forward to that. That'll be 7 to 9 on CHML. But in the meantime, as, uh, as politicians are crisscrossing the country, uh, we, the Canadians, are, are trying to tell them exactly what matters to us. And to that point, uh, Ipsos has released a poll today. This was done on behalf of Global News. And, uh, well, the results are in some ways not surprising, but uh, it's, it's interesting uh, to see just how some of these issues are stacking up. And to that end, we're uh, pleased to welcome uh, Daryl Berker from Ipsos back to the program. Daryl, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Nice to be on again. Thanks. You know, it just kind of reminds me of my old Top 40 radio days. You know, I'm looking at the chart and saying, what's number one? Oh, this one's a, this is number two with a bullet because uh, it's got the biggest change. Healthcare's at the top of the list, and that's, that gets really no surprise, is it? Yeah, it's the dark side of the moon. Uh, it's, uh, it's just on the, the bestsellers list all the time. Uh, the, uh, yeah, um, the healthcare perennial. Uh, and uh, this is something that's interesting. You know, back in the 90s when I started doing this, actually the, as long ago as the 80s, the economy would always be at the top of the list. And sometime, you know, around the turn of the 80s and 90s, healthcare started to creep up and has now moved past. And as traditionally on every survey that we do, when you ask people what's the most important issue, uh, it's healthcare. And I, I think it's coincidental with the fact that the population is aging. And, uh, you know, the median age of a Canadian today, that means half of us are older than this and half of us are younger than this, is 41. Back in the 60s, it was down around 25. So, you know, the population is really aging a lot. And as you age, you get start getting more concerned about your health uh, in every way that you can look at it. So it's not surprising to me that health care is at the top of the list. Well, as, and as you say, uh, <laughs> we're, we're breaking down a lot more because we're hanging around a lot more. I mean, you know, I've had two joint replacements. A good friend of mine just had one done this week. Not an old guy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, those things aren't cheap, and the waiting period for them is pretty significant. So you get that and you get the well as you you and i've talked about you've talked about this on some of your segments on global uh things like like prescription drug plans all of a sudden that's starting to creep into the national conversation again 
Yeah, it is. So when you ask people, okay, so you're really concerned about healthcare, what specifically are you concerned about? Number one thing that they're concerned about is waits at hospitals, uh, waiting for services. That, that That's the top of the list. But right after that, not far after that, is um, is uh, uh, access to drugs and, and pharmaceuticals, followed by access to doctors and, and wait times and quality quality associated with the delivery of all of these things. So it's a combination of not being able, feeling like at some point you won't be able to get what you need, whether it's drugs, whether it's uh, access in a hospital or access to a physician, and you're, it's going to be delivered at the level of quality that you think is appropriate. I, when I see the uh, the one that you just referenced here, access to uh, quality care, I'm, I'm assuming that's maybe specialists. Uh, you know, In other words, you've gone to your GP and they said you, you need a, an orthopod or you need something else like this. I mean, sometimes you have you waiting five six months for that stuff yeah so that's what people are saying you know it's what's one thing to have health care and 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 and, you know it's it's there but if i can't use it and i can't use it in a reasonable amount of time and it's not the level of quality that i think is going to uh you know uh, aid the uh aid, aid my health then what's the point of having it and maybe we need to change it and people are also understanding that the system is coming is starting to get frayed and that's why the strong strong majority i think it was almost close to 90 percent said they don't think that the system as it exists today is sustainable so they're contemplating the need for change there are the political leaders responding to that i mean because in the past there would be a discussion about this in every federal election but invariably at some point during the debates it would say well you know this is really a provincial issue well and and i don't think people care anymore they just want somebody to do something yeah, that's the, uh, the municipal, federal, provincial conversation is something that takes place in every government office but doesn't play, take place in anybody's home. Yeah. Uh, people see a problem and they say, okay, all hands on deck. I don't care what level of government it is. Now, obviously, there are constitutional restrictions to those kinds of things, but uh, um, you know, the, the problem itself is one that's shared by all levels of government. So uh, you know, the, the federal government not saying that it's part of it or the provincial government saying that it has exclusive control, the public's not really into that kind of uh, conversation. Uh, to just to back my top 40 chart analogy for a second here, uh, number two on this list, and it's one with the biggest increase uh, f- from the last time, is, uh, is climate change. It's uh, an issue that now all of a sudden is starting to resonate. Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, the, uh, the interesting thing on climate change is it's one of those ones that's kind of the right answer to the question after what happened with the, the climate strikes last week. Uh, I expect that it'll stay in the top three. It's been in the top three over the last while. Uh, the interesting thing about the issue, though, is that just like with healthcare, people aren't really sure what we should do about it. So, yes, existentially, I'm worried about the changing climate. Am I prepared to pay any more for that? Half Canadians, half Canadians in a poll we did for Global and released a day or so ago said, no, I'm not. Uh, are, they, are, are they prepared to support a carbon tax, particularly commuters? No, not really. So, um, you know, we can be concerned about something, but if we're not actually prepared to do anything, uh, then, you know, what, is it, what does it really add up to in the end? And, and we see that happen time and time again. I mean, sometimes uh, are people answering what they think they should be saying or are they actually talking from their heart? Because I, I get the same thing. I mean, invariably climate change comes up on this program a number of times through the course of the week. But nobody, it's, it's, it's a lot, we should do this. No carbon tax, no cap and trade, no this, no, no, we should charge the polluters. Nobody really seems to have a strategy here that anybody can get behind. Well, and, and, but also the advocates. I mean, I was listening to your guest before. I mean, you know, great. I'm glad to see, you know, people are active. I mean, Greta Thunberg's active. You know, we're all supposed to be ashamed of what we've done. But it's like, okay. It's not about that. Everybody's already knows that climate change. You, you don't have to convince anybody else that climate change is a big deal. 
we're moving on to the next stage, which is what are we going to do about it? And I, I tend to find the people on the advocacy side are so focused on getting people excited about it and concerned about it that they forget that they need to do something with that, which is to build a consensus on what the change is going to be, what the change is going to be. The unfortunate thing with climate is that there's no blue box. You can't get people to recycle and you know deal with this problem uh, it's it's a much bigger problem that we're dealing with a lot of competing interests a lot of a lot of issues it's not going to be easy but they've got to work on building a consensus with the public they have a consensus on the importance of the issue what they don't have is a consensus on on, on the direction of the solutions well the biggest concern that anytime we have a discussion about climate change and this has been on for many many years now is one of the other items on this list here is the economy because there's, there's yeah. a, a lot of people are connecting those dots and saying okay yeah we're going to do something about the environment but that's going to cost us jobs and and well, you know we don't want to go there well it's it's kind of like uh, that steve martin joke i don't know if you remember it when he said uh, you know how do you uh, how do you become a millionaire and pay no taxes first you get a million dollars right and it's like uh, okay so <laughs> Like, I mean, how are we going to deal with this? It's, it's, and, and, you know, Justin Trudeau and, uh, and there's other political leaders have said the same thing, which says, well, we can do, uh, you know, oil and gas and we can do all sorts of great things for the economy and we can have pipelines and we can also support climates. And people go, wait, what? I, you know, I, that's what I want, but do I think to, both of those things are possible? And what you tend to find is people do, tend to divide right down the center which part of that they support. Um, and uh, it's, it's a very difficult issue. Well, and, and it plays a lot bigger in, in places like Alberta and British Columbia, but it's certainly impactful with what's happening here, too. Uh, and it came up, of course, in the French debate, obviously, because of the, 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 the position of the province of Quebec on this. It is now starting to become a national issue. But it, I think there's one th takeaway we've got from the, these two items, the economy and climate change, are inextricably tied together here. And I don't know that any one of the, the four or five leaders, I guess now, uh, have actually figured a strategy that's going to be able to, to develop a policy that's going to suit both of them. Yeah, and that that is the difficulty. I mean, so, uh, um, you know, Justin Trudeau has his approach, which relates to, you know, a, a, a carbon tax, a price on, on, on pollution, as he calls it. Uh, there's not, I don't think I've seen any analysts who actually say that we're going to meet the climate targets that we've committed to. So even that tax is, is not going to get us to where we need to be. Um, and uh, as far as, uh, you know, what the other parties are proposing, they all have kind of have their own version. But as far as what the consensus is among Canadians as to how we should proceed, that is a very elusive topic. I've got to ask you about one other item on the list, which does not surprise me at all, uh, and that is uh, government deficits. And you always find the politicians, especially the leaders, hammering away about that. And it's going to come up on the Monday debate. We know that it is. But uh, your poll here today suggests only about 12% of the people list that as a priority. Uh, and our friends John Iverson and Andrew Coyne, and, and I think even Don Martin over the last couple of days, have written up pieces about this in their respective uh, papers, simply saying, look, people just don't seem to care. This is like the new normal. That's so what, there's a deficit. Are, are we at that cynical stage yet? No. In fact, I, th I think the columnists are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I think that uh, you know, as as far as deficits are concerned, they're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, the, uh, the 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 real focus isn't whether or not technically you think a deficit is a good thing or a bad thing. It's it's what does it communicate to the public about your not necessarily the level of priority that you place on the deficit, but the belief that you need to spend or spend money efficiently and effectively and husband as much resources as you can. 
The idea that you can spend a ton of, you know, you can blow out a ton of money and all the sorts of wonderful things are going to happen, the, the public doesn't necessarily believe that. I mean, even when we were polling at the start of uh, Justin Trudeau's administration, when we asked people about the first the, the, about their first budget, which was, do you think uh, that we should be spending more money to stimulate jobs, or do you think that you are you worried about the deficit? Many more people were worried about the deficit. So the the question really isn't about the technical economic aspects of it. It's more about the uh, what it communicates about how the government regards public money. That's 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 how it comes across. Uh, this is always insightful as your reports and, and the polling is with Ipsos, and uh, I think it gives us a pretty good insight as we're heading into the home stretch in this election as to where we stand. Always a pleasure, Daryl. Thank you again so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.